Welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, along with some voices on tape belonging to Professor Ashling Kelleher on possibly bad news about the generative AI boom and Alex Niven with a dose of capitalist realism in a new edition of the cult English theorist Mark Fisher's best-known book. But we begin with a signal from the birds of Lesbos, relayed to us by artist Bryony Dunn. Dunn works in an area where scientific research overlaps with Dr documentary film, cinema, photography and the natural world. Recently she's been examining migrations of birds and of peoples and the places such as the island of Lesbos where they too overlap, as she explains to Neev Daly. I wanted to blur these lines of fact and fiction, of myth and reality, so I often collaborate with scientists and archaeobotanists and ornithologists, migratory birds, plants, animals, and more recently rhinoceroses have featured in my work. I grew up in the mountains, a rural location in the Wicklow Mountains, and that has very much, I think, informed what I've come to appreciate later in life as well. Two film projects are called Above the Law and Killing the Messengers. The works cover migration, circulation, border ecologies, ancient mythology. Above the Law looks at the migratory routes of both people and birds moving from the Middle East into Europe takes the vantage points of birds, but also of humans and how humans, for instance, on the island of Lesbos, watch birds, but also humans. And looking at and questioning the the forms of surveillance cameras from infrared to binoculars to telescopes. When the law doesn't respect you as a citizen, as a human being, maybe you will cross borders too. Because what you have on this island is a a very important stopover for migratory birds. So I worked with a group of scientists from the Hellenic Ornithological Society. I filmed them watching these birds. And then after that, then I spent time with volunteers that were looking out for boats for people crossing the Mediterranean. It's quite a harsh juxtaposition, but it's there, it exists. I took a trip to this very small island at the bottom of the Penapolis, which is the mainland in Greece. Uh, It's a very small island, but it's considered one of these bottlenecks where all these migratory birds pass through. It was a research trip that, again, I took with this ornithological society. So I spent time documenting them and their work and how these birds are used as messengers to understand changes in the environment, within the climate. The process is called uh, bird ringing, where these small birds, and you can imagine they've just taken this colossal trip across the desert, then across the Mediterranean, and this small island is often their first stopping point to refuel and to rest. So their bodies are tired, their fat muscles are drained, and they're caught in these 
mist nets and the scientists collect them every, I think it's every 40 minutes. They bring them back to the ringing table and then the process of extracting this biometric data then happens right before they would come and take them out of the net. I would quickly photograph them and how they were photographed with this black background, they felt like that they were almost suspended in mid-flight but they also reminded me of some type of awkward taxidermy objects that you would find in a natural history museum. So I also wanted to kind of comment on this relation. As difficult as it is to see this and watch it, the data can be interpreted to understand, you know, what is affecting their roots, which then can be put forward to change policy and to bring in measures to conserve these migratory routes. And in many ways, the scientists would often tell me it's like that what affects these birds, whether that's pollution, habitat loss, climate change, it also affects us. They would describe them as these like messengers. Bryony Dunn there, and the reporter was Neev Daly. Bryony Dunn's upcoming book is called The Sky Only Welcomes Those With Wings. It's a suitably odd fact about the late English writer Mark Fisher's most famous phrase, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism, that it originated elsewhere. It came through Fisher rather than from him, but became the mantra of his most celebrated book, Capitalist Realism, that title itself another plucked from the ether. It's odd because Fisher's short and hugely influential book, just reissued in a new edition from Zero Books was, among other things, a piercing howl against the cul-de-sac of recycled culture. But for a generation of writers, artists and musicians, the book was also much more, as Alex Niven, who's written the introduction to the new edition of Capitalist Realism, explained to Culture File. I got to know Mark in person eventually through working at Zero Books, um, but just, just prior to that, a couple of years before that, he'd encouraged me to write my first book, Folk Opposition, which came out in 2011. The first copy of Capitalist Realism I managed to get my hands on was uh, ordered through the internet, I guess in some ways appropriately. Um, I'd read an article Mark uh, had written in New Statesman, I think in the last days of 20, 2009, and then ordered a copy of Capitalist Realism, partly because it was quite cheap. Um, you know, I think a big factor with zero books is that they were you know quickly written quite cheaply produced uh and therefore cheap to buy that i think helped its readership among younger readers and and students and postgraduate students of which i was one at the time obviously it's a very short sharp pointed text and was pretty blown away by it what did it have to offer you in particular i spent much of my early 20s trying but failing to find an avant-garde in, in Britain, in, in, in England, where I was living. I'd been involved in the music industry. Uh, I was in a band called Everything Everything and was sort of slightly dismayed by the experiences of the music industry and the culture industry more broadly that, that I encountered in the band. I'd sort of retreated back, back to academia to do a PhD, but I'd, I'd also quite quickly discovered that academia was was also in a, a bit of a bad way so discovering mark's text you know just in the fact of its 
style and its format and its publication contexts and, and zero books more broadly was something of a revelation to me because it, it seemed to offer the prospect of a, a kind of contemporary avant-garde sort of failed to find in the years prior to that. I suppose the reason why, you know, we're still interested in the book now is because it did really want to have an action in the world. It, it was a, a way of looking at the world, but it intended that there would be an output from that. Like he actually thought that there was a psychic effect that reading this book could have. Mark, in Capitalist Realism, wasn't calling for specific actions. I think there was a much broader diagnosis and an argument and, and, and prognosis if you like that the only way things were going to begin to change was through some kind of reawakening almost uh you know psychic as you say or, or almost kind of quasi-spiritual reawakening of of the young of bohemia of counterculture of uh, and also of alliances between i guess a kind of unionized working class um, and students, I guess, uh, for want of a better better way of putting it. I think that more than anything else is is what capitalist realism communicates. It's a very short text. It's kind of hooked around these kind of short lyrical phrases. You know, what if you held a protest and everyone came? Uh, and, you know, also the, 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 the axiom, uh, you know, it being easier to imagine the, the end of the world and the end of capitalism. And also, you know, the allusions to Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men, with which the book begins this parable, if you like, about a society not being able to produce young people to to, to reproduce, to to give birth to, to children, essentially. Capitalist realism is, is really, at, at its root, a text which is calling for a reawakening of, you know, of the young and of innovation and renewal that comes from empowering young people. It's much less specific about how that's to be achieved, but I think that... Uh, bottom is is its great power and its its great central argument it diagnosed that there was something uh, stuck about the world in which you were living in in 2009 yeah absolutely i mean i think every generation thinks that their contemporary moment is is the worst possible moment in human history i think you know there were certain particularly bad things about the late late noughties the late 2000s i think compared to now there was less of a sense of impending doom impending apocalypse there was less of a sense that you know they're kind of hurtling towards the cliff edge on the other hand popular culture i think was at a real in a real nadir you had the kind of real kind of fag end of of new labor and obviously you know things like Britpop were the kind of cultural mode if you like of new labor so you had that kind of running out of steam in the form of awful guitar bands and I think underneath all of this, the, the reason why this period was, was particularly bad was a, a problem that capitalist realism, Marx's text, diagnosed, which was that there was no alternative. It seemed as though there was no opposition. There just did not seem to be any organised counterculture or organised left. There just didn't seem to be anything going on at all. In the book, he sort of sees uh, two aspects of this, and one is sort of about the um, managerialism, but the other is a sort of more specifically cultural critique, which is about what Simon Reynolds later called retromania, and this idea that 
um, the people who he saw around him who ought to have been the emerging creative class were incapable of doing anything but looking backwards and regurgitating. I mean, I guess that is something that probably does afflict uh, various generations, but he, he thought it was particularly real at that point. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I, a more broader problem with this this moment of the late noughties in which capitalist realism was written was, yeah, this, this problem of what Simon Reynolds, as you say, diagnosed as retromania, this this sense that popular culture had kind of ground to a halt, had stopped producing new things, had stopped innovating. This probably happens repeatedly throughout cultural history, but I think it was particularly acute at this time and indeed is, is, is still a problem today. I mean, this critique had... I guess there's a sense in which we're, we're talking about a postmodern landscape in which ideas of kind of modernist progress and innovation have ground to a halt and you have kind of postmodernist ethic of recycling and, and regurgitating and kind of looking back to the past and retreating into the past. Alex Niven there on Mark Fisher and Capitalist Realism. Some measure of that book's travel since 2009 is that its cover bears a blurb from Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek. The audiobook version is read by Essex rapscallion Russell Brand and the current issue of Sensible Party Mag, The Economist, uses capitalist realism to decode what's currently going on in the Tory party. Mark Fisher first came to prominence as a blogger who'd been part of a notorious research group at Warwick University called the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit. Alex Niven takes up the story. Mark's blog was called K-Punk, I think partly as a legacy of this kind of cybernetic 90s era. You know, it almost sounds like a kind of drum and bass DJ's tag, if you like. And that became his alias, his blog's title. Some of his earlier writings and, and later writings, obviously, particularly exiting the Vampire Castle, very controversial essay published in, I think, 2013. You know, very controversial at the time and, and almost led to kind of Mark's, I guess, can- cancellation, we might say. All of these things were, were almost a bit dangerous and a bit on the edge. I mean, we see this right at the end of Mark's writing career in, in this concept of acid communism, this half-formulated, because, you know, sadly Mark didn't live to see it formulated at, at length in book form, but, you know, the sense that the, the kind of solution to all of the bad things that were going on in the, in the mid-2010s was to try to kind of backtrack to the 60s and to that kind of slightly out there culture of experimenting with psychedelics, you know, anti-psychiatry and that sort of thing. You know, a lot that's valuable, but I think there is a kind of perhaps a dark side, perhaps a slightly dangerous edge to those sorts of references. This idea that retromania was a problem and that the ability to surprise was missing from a generation of of cultural producers or maybe just youth in general, he played that out as related to the fact that he felt it was dangerous to say some things and that, you know, which is, we have a much stronger version of that now, but he he did have a notion of cancel culture that that he um, kind of critiqued. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think exiting the vampire castle is is the place in which that side of Mark's thinking is expressed and formulated. You do have this incipient critique of what's come to be called cancel culture, but it does start with quite a a, a well-phrased and reasonable argument about call-out culture and about social media and about how things are kind of deconstructed and individualized 
and about how you know we should replace that kind of deconstructive impulse with a with one of solidarity and and support if people say things wrong say things that are that are wrong or ideologically questionable we should probably talk to them in private rather than kind of calling them out on the internet i think this is all very reasonable stuff we are reading the book now and it's quite a few years later and we come across something like in his denunciation of international capital he brings up george soros which is such an incredible red flag now that you know we, we would tend to maybe lose the book after that why shouldn't we it's important to bear in mind that capitalist realism is is now a relatively old text not not an ancient text but it in a sense, does belong to a different era. I think lots of its arguments remain very prescient. But this was a text, you know, written in 2009, as I say, you know, at a point where the left certainly was at a, a very different phase of its development. On the whole, and any kind of missteps that are there arise, for me, largely from the fact that this was a book that was written, you know, in a slightly different era, uh, and, and quite a while ago now. So, I mean, let's look at the things that, that maybe do work. And one of the critiques, which, which seems far-sighted now, was that he kind of saw what was happening in academia in Britain. At one level, he was a disgruntled lecturer that was having, you know, problems with the, with the management. But his analysis of that is one that's for a lot of people in the same sector now still holds true. Mark's critique in capitalist realism was of you know, public sector work culture as a whole. But obviously, in particular, he is interested in his his own profession, if you like, which was academia. Specifically, the diagnosis is that the kind of control, systems of control of bureaucracy in public sector work life and in academia in particular are every bit as bad as, you know, for example, they were in the Soviet Union Mark coined a phrase, market Stalinism, to, to kind of diagnose this emphasis on, you know, league tables, Ofsted inspections in schools, an emphasis on uh, matrix and matrices and figures and, and you know, kind of targets and, and so on. But he called business ontology. Business ontology, yeah, absolutely. So through the importation of what you might call business ontology or, or you know, kind of marketization, various kind of structures and methodologies from business which are completely incongruous and at odds with education and with learning and with academia and with research, really have completely ruined it to the point that it's difficult to see how the humanities, certainly in, in, in the context of higher education, will survive over the next few decades because it's been completely ruined by this is business ontology. One of the ways that it feels quite contemporary is the way it thinks about mental health and about mental health's relationship to society more broadly. Yes, Capitalist Realism, obviously a text written by Mark Fisher. There's obviously a, you know, quite a tragic sort of personal biographical subtext to this in that, you know, Mark struggled for years with, with mental health and with, you know, depression in particular and, and, and obviously very, very tragically um, took his own life at the end of that process. Um but yeah, I mean, I think the big sort of macro argument of the book and the reason why it was so provocative and much needed at the time was that it really flung the emphasis of dysphoria, as Mark calls it, or, or depression, we might say, onto society as a whole and away from this sense which you get in 
neoliberal culture, late capitalist culture, whatever you want to call it, postmodern culture of all kinds, that the individual is responsible for their own uh, kind of psychodramas, if you like, and that through a kind of heroic act of magic voluntarism, as phrase Mark like to use this sense of uh, that you could kind of voluntarily and magically rise above individual circumstance and kind of make yourself better through uh, your own kind of heroic efforts. Capitalist realism was very much, uh, was arguing something very different, which was that, you know, mental health is a social issue. It's a collective issue. It's a political issue. We are kind of all suffering because of the overall system, not just because of particularities and, and individual circumstances, but because the overall system is wrong and it's immiserating all of us psychologically and that we need to address these things collectively, socially, politically, rather than a kind of heroic individual effort of kind of rising above these circumstances. Alex Niven there on Mark Fisher and Capitalist Realism, the new edition of which is out now from Zero Books, an ideal gift for the big other in your life. If you haven't left Twitter yet, what's keeping you? You will have noticed the timeline filling up with posts from non-humans. It's happening on Mastodon too, by the way. And we're not just talking bots here. From sets of surreal images or crazy movies generated by AI, or most recently texts created with the help of chat GPT, generative AIs of various flavours are busy supplanting good old-fashioned handmade content. What's going on here, I asked culture file tech soothsayer Professor Ashling Kelleher. Oh yeah, and what is generative AI? There's a, there is a lot going on and the generative is the exciting part. It's not just, you know, it's the idea that these algorithms are creating art, allegedly, by training them on prior art, right? So the creative output of humans is being used to train algorithms to, I guess, mimic that um, creativity. So the simplest example would be there's, you know, it's been flooding over social media in particular, the idea of using text to image generation. So you can put in a piece of text and the more surreal, the better. Like I've seen ones that are like marks being covered in slime on Nickelodeon. You can input that as a text and it will generate a fairly convincing image of the great marks indeed been covered in slime looking like he's on a children's television show. What exactly is it when you say they're using uh, images from the internet? What does using mean in this case? So what they're specifically using are text and image pairs. So the idea that when you see perhaps an image that is in a newspaper article or rendered and available on the web, that you look at the surrounding text around it, which gives you some context about or inference about what might be in the image. You know, obviously this is something that comes about through web accessibility as well, that we try and use the alt tag to describe what is in the image, which is useful for people who use screen readers, um, for example, for blind users or people with low sight, that it will actually read out to the user what specifically is being depicted in the image. So this is a way that you might get like, oh, you know, it's a footballer, Mo Salah, you know, scoring a penalty. And so we have many, many images because he's so great of him scoring penalties. Basically, by looking at actually like millions and millions of these images, you can do uh, analysis on them like at the pixel level of like what exactly 
makes up an image that depicts somebody successfully scoring a penalty. And there's so many images of this that it can be used to train a model that can quite successfully generate a response to a text input. Now, there's a very interesting phenomenon called prompt engineering that I've recently become familiar with as to like how you can best massage the, the, the phrasing of the text that you input to generate either, you know, the most aesthetically pleasing image or something that's actually, you know, very humorous, that it's not just generating an image, but you can generate an image that has a very particular style to it. Which has caused its own its own problems because people have created filters without the knowledge of the artist, which will let the machine produce work in their style. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a recent case that Andy Bio, who's a very famous kind of internet um, speaker and, and thinker, uh, wrote about on his blog, org, where he's talking about um, Holly Mengert, who's a, a illustrator. She does a lot of children's literature, just character development for games. And she has a very attractive style that is clearly very oriented around making very child-friendly images using one of the stable diffusion, which is created by Stability AI, there's a particular user on Reddit just took maybe like by 20 of her images and was able to use that using Stable Diffusion's um, platform to train a model, a Dream Booth model that could generate graphics that approximated her style. This was very odd in some ways because initially people were like wow that's an amazing model it's really cool like try this person now and then slowly the conversation on reddit turned around like does the artist know you did this (laughs) does the artist want this and how does the artist feel about this particularly if it's an artist who's not necessarily you know at the picasso level so what andy bio did was reach out to her and go hey what do you think of this and surprisingly enough she was not particularly happy about this because she didn't give permission for it and also she didn't particularly enjoy the art you know that was created it seemed to lack you know, for better for a better word, maybe that aura, like the Walter Benjamin idea of of her original art, and the person who generated it was like, well, it's out there now. Like this is possible. Why not do that? And that brings up many many issues that are coming about. Like as we move from generative two dimensional images to generative video to generative audio, is is all on the way. What does that mean when you're you know creating a uh, unsavory images or or taking people's particular image it could be a celebrity but what happens when it's like oh it's my neighbor that I don't like or a colleague I don't like now I'm going to generate these images or videos and and, and ruin their lives potentially. And this is particularly kind of interesting in this new era with things like the company behind Stability AI because a lot of the work that's been done by AI has been in AI has been done uh, you know through open AI at the behest of of uh, Google or Meta or some other large conglomerate, but now the feeling is that, that there's a there's a sort of paradigm shift in how generative AI will be made available to people. Yeah, this is what's particularly interesting. The idea being that oh, you don't need to have a supercomputer, or there isn't this middle person, this middleman, this platform that you have to use to generate it. Who who is actually going to be responsible for? the artificially created media. And in this case, there's slightly different approaches to that with OpenAI, which which created Dolly 2, where initially, you know, they own the the copyright on the images that created it, but they will license them to kind of recognized individuals. 
Okay, so then they have a whole series of kind of rules and regulations about not creating work that has anything to do with like pornography, not creating work that uh, uses celebrities or people that are, are images of people that you don't have permission as a licensee to use. When it comes to something like stability AI, now we're talking about a very different model. This is an open source approach where you can download this software to your own computer and basically, according to them, do whatever you want. So what you're seeing is a lot of things have been generated with this capability. And I'm a big believer in like, oh, tools for the masses is great. But what happens when there's kind of an abdication of responsibility about anything that is created with those tools? Who, who, who's going to be responsible for this? This this is is complex, and I think that we're the same way that if we develop tools that allow us to generate, you know, artificially and replicate a person, whether their image or their voice or their movement, we also will probably need to develop tools that can verify, right, and 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 let us know that this is a simulation and not something that is authentic, and then you know that becomes a gatekeeping thing that maybe people say like, well, I do want to look at the simulation, but at least I'm aware that it's a simulation. Um, and perhaps then you will have people who could, you can license how you move. I mean, I see certain basketball players, for example, that the way they shoot a basketball, I'm like, I'd love to create an image of me doing that. And if they could license that and I could kind of replicate that, that would look cool. No. So I think there's opportunities there both to be, you know, the generator of this, but also the gatekeeper. I'm into regulation now, apparently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Professor Ashling Kelleher there from her desk at USC School of Cinematic Arts, Los Angeles, on Made Up Stuff. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more Backwards Progress next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now.